Welcome to Win Win, a podcast from the Department of Sport and Exercise Science at the Waterford Institute of Technology. I'm your host, Bruce Wardrop, and in each episode, I'll be chatting with someone who works behind the scenes in sport, helping athletes to maximise their performance potential. If my guest is winning, hopefully their athletes are winning too. In this episode, I'm catching up with Kira Sinnott O'Connor, who is the Head of Performance Physiology at the Sport Ireland Institute. Kira, welcome to the podcast. It's lovely to finally catch up with you. As with so many of my guests, it has been just way too long since we last spoke. Way too long, for sure. Yeah, it's been, uh, I'd actually, I wouldn't like to put a, a time frame on it, to be honest with you, uh, make us all feel old uh, when, we've, when we realise the years are going by so quickly like that. I know. Well, I worked with you for my very first involvement in games. That was London. So it's been a while. <laughs> it has. Yeah, yeah. No, we are, you know, we've been acquainted for a long, long time. So... Now, you are now the head of performance physiology at the Sport Ireland Institute from going from your early days, your very first involvement in London. Yeah. Now the big boss. Yeah. Um, <laughs> tell us about your, let's start off with the basics. Tell us about your, your, your job there. What do you, what does the head of performance physiology do? Um, well, I guess I'm part of the physiology team. So there's a team of us that work here. Uh, the head means that I get to do all the admin and budgeting stuff that isn't as fun. Um but we work with any of the athletes that are coming in. So we're delivering the physiology support to any of our institute athletes. Um, like we have a large range of sports. We have a track cycling camp in here this week. So every week or every day can be a little bit different. Um, I suppose it just depends on what the sport needs at the time. Okay, well, that's that's interesting. So you say the track cyclists are with you there today. So what yeah. I, I sometimes ask what a typical day looks like, but yeah. I guess you don't have a typical day. What does today look like for you? Um, well, this morning we had athletes in for RMR testing, so resting metabolic rate. So they would all have come in early enough this morning, fasted. We try and get them in a rested state. And really we're just looking to make sure that their energy demands are matching their energy intake at the moment. And then this afternoon, we'll have a couple more in the lab. There's a new PhD student here. So we're just collecting data and they're doing a little bit of testing on the SRM. The SRM is a, a test ergometer there for cyclists, yeah, just for anyone like who's not familiar with this. Bike, bike computer thing. Yeah, yeah, big fancy bike computer. That's a good way to describe <laughs> it. Uh, okay, and so so if you're to doing resting metabolic rate, then so uh, part you're part of the physiology team, and mm -hmm. I know you guys work as part of a, a multidisciplinary team. So yeah. does that mean you're linking in there and with with other support services there with those these athletes today? Yeah. So for the most part, when we do resting metabolic rate at the institute, it's nutrition and physiology. So we would do the testing. Sometimes nutritionists would, but if anyone has ever used a metabolic cart. They can be kind of tricky and complicated at times. So generally it falls to physiology. And then that data is fed back to the athlete and the nutritionist. And the nutritionist would generally follow up then with a consult after. Yeah, you've just actually reminded me we're 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 looking for a new metabolic system at the moment right. down here. And I know you guys use the MOX. Do you still use the MOXIS? We do, we do. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we are uh, tendering for a new metabolic system. And one of the things we put into the tender was, you know, we have preference for a system that's simple to, to calibrate yeah. you know automated calibration all that stuff and, and simplifying that the process yeah it can uh, be tricky for sure it can be tricky yeah uh, very good so yeah how many athletes have you got with you in, as part of the camp um there's probably the guts of 10 on in this week they'll 
have like a full week of service. So there'll be different sessions with life skills, physio, uh, nutrition, um, S&C, physiology. There'll be team meetings. There'll be some workshops. So it's, it's a pretty full on week for them. And is this, is this, um, is it mixed? Is it males, females, or is this? So it, yeah, it's uh, males and females. Males and females. Brilliant. So that's, uh, that's this week or th- this next couple of days you, yeah. for you tied up. Yeah. And yeah. then I'm harassing you to do a podcast in the middle of that's it all. That's okay. Happy to do it. <laughs> Very good. So <laughs> you mentioned there that, you know, the, the, the bulk of your work uh, outside of the admin is athlete focused. So how yeah. much time do you spend with athletes? Do you, do you, is, the, is the majority of your time with them? Or, um, uh, I would say for a performance physiologist, it's probably 75% of your time. The other 25% is like the data and the results afterwards, the setting up the lab, the, the moving equipment, even researching protocols. If like a new sport has come in or you're trying to look at something different. So there's definitely some desk work, but a large chunk of the majority is with athletes. Very good. Yeah, that makes for a very interesting job. That's one yeah. of the things I love about it is that, you know, you, you are, you're not desk bound. You're, you're no. most of the time you're, you're doing something, you're interacting with people. Yeah. Might be the same test over and over, but it's always slightly different with mm-hmm. each athlete that comes into you. Yeah. Um, I think seeing the progression um, or seeing how your body changes depending um, on what they've done from one test to the next is really interesting. Like that's why I love doing it. So yeah, so it keeps you on your toes. Fascinating. Brilliant. So uh, something that's in the rearview mirror, but not too far away is Tokyo. Uh, can you tell us about your involvement in, in Tokyo and the with the Irish athletes? Yeah, so I went to the Olympics firstly with the road cyclists. So I would have traveled with them from Paris and um, done kind of their holding week, I suppose you'd say, like just getting over the jet lag. And then they competed on the Sunday, I had the time trial then the, about three days later um, with Nicholas Roach. And then I moved up to see some of the track athletes because they had just arrived in from Mallorca, which is where they're based. Um, had a couple of days with them just to make sure they were um, settled in. And then I flew home and went to the Paralympic swimming holding camp, which was in Fortaventura. And from there, we went back to Tokyo, into Narita for our holding camp, and then into the village. So, right, okay, that's a lot of traveling, a lot of traveling. Um, And there's a fair bit to unpack there. So first of all, for for anyone who might be familiar, you mentioned a holding camp. What's a holding camp? So generally, if we're traveling long haul or over a longer distance, we would have um, a camp that's specifically for kind of acclimating to the new environment, getting over the travel and starting to get back to training. Um, before like a major games, a holding camp, it also like centers athletes a little bit before they have to go into the madness of the village. So it gives you a little bit of quiet time when it's just your own country. So we would generally have a hotel where there's no other country staying there and we would have kind of use of facilities. Yeah, kind of it's an opportunity for the athletes to envelop themselves in that performance bubble and yeah. shut out any excess noise and focus on what they're going to be doing. Yeah, yeah. 
Brilliant. Um, and as well, and right, so I know you've got ex- personal experience from all the travel that you've just listed out there. But yeah. one of the things you mentioned there for the travel was, uh, sorry, one of them you mentioned for the athletes was an opportunity to to get over the travel. So yeah. how how does how did does or how did the travel uh, impact the Irish athletes heading out to Tokyo? Um, well, I suppose we knew that it was going to be a long haul eastward travel, which is the worst kind of travel in terms of jet lag. So if anyone's travels like to America and it's westward, you'll generally feel like you'll wake up early enough the next morning, but you'll settle in quite easily to the time zone. Whereas when you go to um, eastward, so to Tokyo, um, you're traveling across eight time zones. So it's pretty significant. And you're trying to adjust your body clock in terms of catching up with the new time zone. So it's much more of a challenge for us to help athletes adjust. Okay, so what type of things might they like? What were the detrimental effects then of traveling across those time zones? What what possible outcome or impacts might it have on the athletes? Um, well, just as without any interventions, you'll generally find that people will not sleep well. Um, you can have like gastro disturbances. People generally don't feel very well; like they feel pretty off. Your performance can be really affected. You can find that you're you're wanting to sleep in the middle of the day and you'd be wide awake at night time. So it's it's very off-putting for athletes and it's really what we want to avoid as much as possible. Okay. And if an athlete wasn't traveling a long haul, are there any other impacts that there might be on uh, from, from the travel? Um, well, you get like travel fatigue. So if you think about uh, going on a regular holiday to say Spain, so you have to get up, pack, leave your house, get to the airport, check in, go through security. You know, you're on the flight, you get off the flight, you have to get your bags, you're dragging them to a hotel. There's a lot of stress there. So people would generally have travel fatigue, even for a short journey. Um, like for Paralympic athletes, some people won't travel well. So we also have to consider that. So their fatigue is slightly higher. Okay, so we've got, you can have travel fatigue from any journey yeah. and then you get jet lag the more time zones you're, well, you jet lag the further the travel and generally if you're more going eastward, yeah, more time zones and it's worse if you go eastwards. Yeah. So yes. Tokyo was going to be pretty bad from a, a tra- jet lag and travel fatigue perspective. Yes. Um, I suppose people have done it before with Beijing. There's been other competitions that have been eastward. Um, we knew it wasn't a surprise it was in Tokyo. So we knew for the last however many years. Um, and Tony Rossiter, one of the physiologists here, is doing her PhD in long haul travel with athletes. So any opportunity that we had for test events or eastward travel for the last two years. Um, Tony had kind of put a plan in. So we were testing strategies, collecting data, and then altering strategies depending on what results came from that. Okay. So that's, you know, some pretty specific in-house research that's yeah. going to help guide the athletes. So mm-hmm. um, what, 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 what's been indicated so far from that results? Can you, or what can you tell us about that? Um, so Paralympic Swimming would have travelled to where their holding camp was in Narita um, in October 2018, I'm going to say. Um, so any athlete who could have potentially qualified went on that trip. They got to um, trial the strategy that we were going to use because it was going to be the same flight that we would have been taking had Tokyo happened in 2020. Um, so we wanted to see how, number one, how athletes were impacted by travel. And number two, how well did the strategy work? So we would have collected a lot of morning wellness data, resting heart rate data, monitored them in in the swimming pool. And we collected the data on staff as well. So 
trying to see what impact it had on everyone. And was there a significant impact? Did it affect some things more? Well, I presume it affected some people more than others, but were like were there different impacts on things like their mood versus their performance or anything yeah. like that? <clears throat> there would have been one or two who we would have identified as poor travellers, so um, particularly wheelchair users because they can't get up and move around on a plane. Um, and this was obviously all pre-COVID where there's all new rules, but um, they would have needed a little bit more time just to settle into... Um, the environment and maybe have done some lower intensity training for a day or two longer than some of the other swimmers who who could have pushed on a little bit earlier. So things like resting heart rate would have been up, mood scores would have been down, sleep wouldn't have been great, Um, general wellness and how they felt. They were the things that we were looking to kind of center before we would move into pushing them in training. Okay, so that's something that, well, we, I presume we have bad travellers yeah. amongst the able-bodied athletes as well, but yeah. it, for, for Paralympic athletes, they, there's some specific extra challenges that might be faced mm-hmm. um, from from travel. So I guess and I'm just thinking back to my own time. It's things like, you know, waiting to, to board and, and disembark the plane. There's slight delays there. You, you know, there are less opportunities for the for the athlete to move when they're on the plane. Why is that important? Why is it important for them to move when they're on the plane uh, in a long haul flight? So it's really just trying to do some stretching and mobility work so that people don't get so tight. If you can imagine, it's, it can be 12 plus hours on sitting. Um, and when we are trying to get them to sleep, we want them to lie still. So when it's kind of wake time, we want them moving around, just blood circulation and um, they tend to like drink a little bit more in terms of fluid intake when they're up and about. So they're all things that we try and encourage them to do. And that can help to offset some of the, the negative impacts when they lie of the of the travel. If you're if you can do the stay hydrated, move around on the on the flight, little things that can have a, a positive impact. Yeah, and um, we would have some I'm gonna say gadgets that we would use for long haul travel like that. We would have used Firefly devices for Rio. We use them again for Tokyo. Um, okay, I'm not. I'm not familiar with the Firefly device. So Tell me about them. It's a kind of a neuromuscular stimulator for your calves. You attach um, kind of a, a long. Uh, it kind of looks like a tadpole. Is the only way I can describe it. <laughs> it attaches onto the side of your knee and it goes around your leg, um, and you can increase or decrease the stimulation. So basically, what you're looking at is it's pumping action for your blood around your lower legs. Um, research, if you were to do very, you know, tight research, it would say that there's probably not as much of um, an improvement as you would like to see, but athletes would report that their legs don't have that dead, you know, swollen feeling. So we, we still use them for athletes who can. Okay. Yeah. So it, it's kind of to help circulation basically. Is that, that's, that's what it is. It's, yeah. You can use them in combination with kind of flight socks and stuff as well. Yeah. Preventing the blood from pooling down the bottom leg. Yeah, yeah. And to the, yeah, the athletes like them, they, they kind of re- subjectively report that they feel better, even though the objective measures mightn't mash up with this. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's the perception that your legs feel better, but it's also a cool gadget that you get to stick on. And then people tend to like something flashy. Um, 
yeah so that helps yeah okay even if it is a placebo it's yeah. a nice one to use yeah yeah cool uh well speaking of that I, I did see some other stuff um then that some of the athletes were using so i know that they were using special glasses when they arrived over mm-hmm. in uh, in tokyo so can you tell us a little bit about them what were they what do they do and how do they help the athletes uh, so, adjust? <clears throat> some of the glasses that people would have used were called we had pro peak um, and they change the lighting that's coming in to, to the brain. So it can either be orange light or blue light, depending on how we're manipulating um, daylight. So sometimes we'll ask athletes to seek daylight and sometimes we'll ask them to avoid daylight. And why might, sorry, why might you do that? So it's all about um, kind of rebalancing the body clock and getting it back synchronized with the new time zone. So there will be like a structured plan of times that you should avoid light and it will get a little bit earlier every day um, and then times that you should avoid it. And so wearing the glasses actually helps to cut out some of that that light that's entering and, yeah. and stimulating you. Yeah, so it's mimicking the same thing. You can use them before you travel and then you can use them after arrival. Um, we tend to use sunglasses also. So same idea. You, you obviously don't get the orange light and the blue light, but... Um, you can block the light when you're trying to get athletes to avoid it. And that's probably more important early in the morning. So Paralympic athletes arriving in Tokyo would have worn sunglasses on the plane, probably from about the time they woke up, about 9am. And they would have kept them on until about 11, 11.30. So through COVID checks and immigration, they all had sunglasses on. That's, <laughs> that's unu- it sounds unusual, but there was yeah. a, a purpose to it. Well, I and always again, say to athletes that they need to get the ugliest, least fashionable sunglasses they can find. So we want proper dark wraparound, not lovely Ray-Bans. That yeah, big ones good. that are going to block out light and, and, and nothing seeping in around the sides. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, uh, very good. That's that. That's really interesting. I think I, was, I think it was Alan Keane and a few others I saw sporting the glasses on a, on a yeah. few posts on social media, yeah. uh, which it was really it was interesting. And it's just small little tips that that well, not just athletes, but other people can use if they're absolutely if they're traveling long haul as well. Yeah. And overall, uh, how do you think was 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 that travel strategy that was put in place was it a success? Did it help the athletes? Um, well, I guess I went twice. Um, I oh, yeah. What was your personal experience yeah. with this? I followed the strategy, which I tend to be more of a do as I say, not as I do type of a practitioner at times. But um, I didn't have any jet lag. So even that first morning, it was really about keeping the curtains in the room closed and um, trying to avoid light as much as I could. Wearing sunglasses when I went outside until about 11 a.m. For the Paralympic swimmers, breakfast was in this gorgeous kind of top level floor in the hotel windows all around which was the exact opposite of what we needed so (laughs) they all had baseball caps on coming to breakfast for the first couple of days just to try and reduce the amount of of light that was coming in Um, and everyone seemed to adapt well we didn't have any poor adapters um that i can think were you collecting data from them when they were at the games as well or did you pull back on that um so i would have worked like really with Paralympic swimming through their travel. So I would, would have been collecting data on them every day, even if it was just checking in to see how they were getting on, checking their hydration, seeing how they slept, checking their rest and heart rate, that kind of stuff. Yeah, so that's, it seems that like some of that stuff that you mentioned there, checking in, how are they feeling? How do they sleep, rest and heart rate? Mm-hmm. That's, you know, really simple, low-tech mm-hmm. stuff. How, how important is that to you on a day-to-day basis, just getting the basics squared really away? Important. 
really important. And I mean, I've, I've done a PhD in load monitoring. I've used lots of different monitoring systems. And often you'll find, and I know Caroline McManus would have said the same thing, that a comment from an athlete can sometimes give you more information than all of the science numbers combined. So it's just that daily check-in, asking people how they are, how do they feel. Some coaches would say they can see it in, in athletes' eyes, what they're like on the day when they arrive down to the pool bank or they arrive to train. So yeah, those simple measures can be really, really effective. Yeah, I always often found that, you know, sometimes you can spend a long time working with, with athletes or squads, like like multiple seasons, yeah. trying to get those basics established, embedded and done right. Yeah. And then once you do, it, it can make such a huge difference. And then yeah. you've got the, the the impact of any new people joining the panel. Well, then they just see, well, this is the norm and they yeah. get on board quite quickly with it. So exactly. once you're over that initial hump of trying to introduce it and get it embedded, um, it makes for a bit more plain yeah. sailing. But and it's, it's can be pretty big. So don't get me wrong. As in, it can take a long time and it can be really, like you have to persevere. But I think if you get the coach on board and actually if you can show an athlete an example of someone that you might have caught just right on the edge before, you know, they got sick or injured or they just overtrained slightly, then you'll get a lot more compliance because people want to be able to train for as many days of the year as they can. Yeah. And do you find sometimes then that would people who are maybe new coming into you, do they expect things to be fancy and high tech and gadgets all over the place? Uh, or and, and do you have to pare back their expectations or does it lie somewhere in between? I think it depends on their experience so far. Um, you know, we don't work with a lot of junior athletes. So sometimes when they come into a program, it can be very new. So even if we had an unlimited budget and lots of gadgets, we would really start off small. You don't want to throw the kitchen sink at someone and nearly scare them and their coach off from wanting to work with you. So it's small changes and then you introduce new things really slowly over time or as they're needed. So sometimes, you know, basic measures might be all you do, but that's all that sport needs right now. Yeah, I, yeah, I get that as well. Like sometimes over the years, we've had like GA clubs, not counties, clubs, coming requesting gps monitoring for their yeah. training and things like that and like this is their first dip into any sort of sports science support and we're going kind of like, well there's maybe a bit more stuff you could do before you dive in there with that yeah yeah for sure have it all the time so you mentioned your phd there um yeah. can we can we talk about that for a while sure tell us about it I was, so you mentioned it was in load monitoring an athlete so yeah. what did you do um so i started a phd with paralympics ireland in 2014 and kind of worked on my research question with Dr. Joe Conway, who you would have known from your Paralympic days, um, and Tony, she was here at the time as well. Um, so we would have tried to figure out what athlete group we were going to work with. Um, we kind of agreed that Paralympic football was the ideal population because you had 14 lads who were doing the same or similar type of training every week. Um, for Paralympic football, they're either cerebral palsy or they have an acquired brain injury. So similar, um, I suppose, impairment or disability in terms of load monitoring and how you would control the training week to week. And I collected about a year's worth of data before IPC decided that Paralympic football would not be a Paralympic event after Rio. Um, <laughs> so this is probably one of my 
bits of advice for an athlete is that the road to where you want to get to will never be smooth but there'll be lots of twists and turns and you will learn something it'll be worth it in the end um yeah so I've been working with Paralympic swimming I suppose for about two years at that stage um so we just continued the research on with them and the data that I was doing day to day for their monitoring became my PhD data I have to say now, and, and uh, I'm confessing something here. I am—I don't know whether I'm jealous or envious of you. I, like I look back when I heard that you were doing it, I was like, "Oh my god, that was such a good idea!" Yeah. And I was kicking myself for not when I, you know, when I did all the work of Paralympics, uh, for not turning it into. Now I don't, wouldn't, don't regret it, or don't, don't, you know, I look back so fondly on that time. Yeah. But now I'm thinking. God, I should have turned it into something more as well. So yeah. I think it was brilliant that you took that opportunity to yeah. uh, to marry your the work that you were doing into some research and and, and postgraduate study as well. So yeah. I don't know, Jella, proud, happy for you, but a bit jealous at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think anyone who wants to embark on research in high performance sport, you have to be able to dovetail the data collection with what you're doing on the ground. It's very, very rare that you will get high-performance athletes, you know, I'm talking like that are coming into the Institute, that are preparing for Worlds or Olympics or Paralympic Games, that are going to participate in a come to the lab four times over four weeks and do a max test. That's not the kind of information you're going to be able to collect. So you really have to look at the population and see what information you could collect on a daily basis that won't impact them or their coach too much, but that gives you the information that you need. Okay, so that's interesting. So anyone who might be considering that yeah. this that pathway, that's that's an approach that you'd recommend. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Maximum output for you, minimum impact on them. Yes. That's yeah. a tricky one. That's a tricky one. But it yeah. seems now you you mentioned I I know there's the, you know Tony's doing her PhD. You mentioned there's another PhD student helping you at the moment. So yes. there must be that must be the way of thinking up there now. There's more uh, opportunities to develop these ideas and turn them into something. Uh, I'm like a more established project yeah I mean I guess as the team is growing bigger here we can take on um more PhD students so there's there's one at the moment it's doing a combined nutrition and physiology one so he's looking at bone health in elite athletes Um, the newest one that started is looking kind of cycling aerodynamics and positional information um, and then Tony's is is in travel so it probably wouldn't have been possible when when you would have been working with Paralympics for PhD because you know you want to be involved in them and you want to be at the meetings and helping them collect their information as well as train them in in terms of becoming good physiologists but when it's all go all the time there's they just end up sitting there so we're not able to do that yeah make me feel a little bit better yeah it wasn't wasn't possible back then Um, very good so when did you finish up your PhD there was a few years ago now at this stage Um, I did 2019 I graduated so I did my viva in 2018 and you got an actual graduation out of it I did I did 2019 I got an actual graduation yeah yeah that was probably the last one before they all went online virtual yeah virtual uh, graduations good cool Um, okay so what about if we um if well I know I wanted to ask more questions on that so the research that you did how how has has the findings of the research you've done has that had any impact or implications for Irish athletes has it changed anything that you do yeah so like one of the markers that I looked at was the salivary monitoring so um basically you can pop like a lollipop stick with a cotton bud on the top under an athlete's tongue um and you can measure immunity markers and stress markers in saliva 
they correlate pretty well with what you would get from like blood markers. But it's again, it's another way of taking a measure from an athlete that's not too uh, invasive and it's easy to do. So that was one of the markers I used. And when you use that in conjunction with training load data, you can see how an athlete is responding. So if people don't know, um, IgA is an immunity marker. <clears throat> when you measure it in saliva, it's called salivary IgA. And research out there would tell you that if you see a steady decline in IgA over three weeks, an athlete is at a higher risk of kind of an upper respiratory infection. So we would monitor um, saliva levels the day after a rest day. So you're kind of getting a, a baseline for the week and maybe one in the middle of the week in between harder sessions. So that just gives us a good idea that it might drop a little bit midweek, but we want to see it recover after their rest day. So is that something that all your athletes do on an ongoing basis now? Uh, some of them. So some. some athletes would do it. Like I said, we, we need good, consistent training data first. And then you can layer on the salivary data. So we don't do it with every athlete at the moment. And is that saliva? So is that the, the salivary IGA test? Is that something they self-administer, or do they come into you to get it done? So they take the little kit home. They pop the cotton bud under their tongue. It goes blue when they have enough saliva on it, and they pop it into a little bottle and bring it into me. Very good. So yeah, I suppose these days we're kind of all used to those kind of tests between yeah. COVID tests and antigen tests. It's, it's not it as bad sound... as them, I promise. But yeah, um, yeah. So like that's a good marker. My PhD da- data showed that that responded well. So we continue to use that in certain athletes. Um, like for Paralympic swimming, we were able to validate session or PE in that population. So we know that that works well. Okay, so that was something else I wanted to ask about. So what, what measures did you use to, 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 to monitor training load in the athletes? So we were using session or PE for training load. Um, from that, you can calculate. What, just, what, what is session or PE there? So you would take the time of the session. So if it's an hour, 60 minutes, and you would multiply it by a number from one to 10. So, you know, kind of one to three is that easier recovery work. Three to five is getting a little bit harder. And then 10 is pretty much a max effort. Okay, so you're taking a measure of the duration of the session times how hard they felt the session was. Yes. And it gives you a score that you can track. Yes, yes. Lovely and simple. Yeah, I mean, it's a subjective measure. So you would kind of look at that data in line with some objective data in in athlete populations so cycling you would look at their power and running you might look at their distance swimming it doesn't really work that way because you don't have an objective measure like if I said to you swim 10 out of 10 for an hour um in a pool and you do 100 laps and then I say swim you know an hour easy and you do 100 laps that's still 100 laps so the distance doesn't really tell us much so that's why we needed a different marker to be able to look at the intensity of the sessions. Okay. And so by tracking those two things and with a little bit of background information, you mm-hmm. get a pretty good picture of what's going on with those athletes. And perhaps you can foresee or that is, if that open window for infection is, is starting to open, yeah. uh, you can predict it to a certain degree. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, we would take some calculations so they would use that session or P for every training session that they have even right down to if someone does a yoga class as an extra training uh, stimulus during the week or you know for a bit of mobility and then we take some wellness markers and we just track how they change over time so combined with the salivary data 
we can see if athletes are responding well. If they're not responding as well as we think, and then we can investigate it a little bit. Um, or if, if things aren't going well, we know kind of when they were going well and what they were doing at the time, and we have something to compare to. Very good. And the, the day-to-day um, information, the wellness markers and stuff that they're feeding back to you as well, yeah. how is that done these days? Is that online or is there some app? It's on a use? phone app. So phone. the biggest thing I've ever learned is your phone is in your hand 24-7. So if you can collect data on something that's in, in your hand, you know, even actographs on your wrist will collect better data than asking someone to fill in a sleep diary. So apps are the way forward for athletes. Yeah. And it's again, I'm thinking back to when, when, well, when I first started and even when we were in London together, um, it would have been pen and paper. Yeah. Uh, back to back to, so I remember like having to print out every day and manually, manually <laughs> record all the results. It was like half a day gone just to figure out how the athletes yeah. were feeling that morning. But what that, like we were, we, we did that in real as quick as possible mm-hmm. so we could get as close to real time data. But I presume that's much easier for you guys now. You have, you know, you just click click into whatever app you use to yeah. check in on the data that there the athletes are putting into you. Yeah, I mean, it's much easier for remote data collection. If we were on a camp or at a competition, I still want to be able to like look them in the eye and see how they're actually doing. So there is a little bit of checking in and maybe, um, say for swimming when they're doing their dry land work, I'll go around with a clipboard and I'll write down their scores, just so I can have that few minutes of talking to them. But yeah, for in terms of being able to collect data easy for athletes, the app is is the best thing I've seen so far. Yeah, so kind of that links back to what you said at the start, you know, that, that you spend maybe 75% of your time with athletes. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it is collecting the data, performing the tests, but there's also that relationship building going on with them as well that, yeah. you know, once it helps to get you know, to know them a little bit better, you can do your job more effectively. Definitely, definitely. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Okay, what about looking forward? So we've got a, a relatively short run into to Paris compared yeah. to other years, but what's on the horizon for you guys? Um, well, Paris, I suppose, is going to be here in no time. Uh, I was in a meeting yesterday where all the weeks between now and kind of Worlds next year, Worlds the following year in Paris, we're on a board and it seems pretty Makes it very short. real. Yeah. Um, like there's going to be World Championships. Um, there's going to be Europeans. Hopefully next year, you know, before we think of Paris, we have to think of qualification. So it's different a little bit because it's going to be a short cycle and I suppose Tokyo was a longer one. But our preparations will start like from last week, I'm going to guess. You know, we're already planning out how that's going to work and where we need to put service into. Um, yeah, it's then from about 2023, you just put your head down and go for it. Yeah, yeah. So it is. I know it seems like it's a long way away, and Tokyo is only just over. Yeah. But really, the cycles just roll from one straight into the next, and and it all begins yeah. again. Yeah, like sometimes you'll get in a normal four-year cycle, you'll get from after the games to Christmas where things are quiet, people can take a break. But we're already in year one of a cycle, so you know the the first year of a four-year cycle is almost over. We don't have time to take that longer break. We have to just make plans and start moving adapt and, and overcome yeah pretty much yeah very good very good i've like I've, one of my the, the other questions i often ask people and I, I i think you've kind of answered what what do you enjoy most about your job here um i love my job i i i think i'm so lucky that i get to go to work every day and i love what i do um like 
don't get me wrong, everyone has days where something doesn't work or the computer won't turn on and, you know, you get really frustrated or um, interactions with people aren't as pleasant as, as you'd like them to be. But there there comes days where I just think I'm really, really lucky to be doing what I'm doing. You get Ireland kit, you get to help athletes deliver their best performances um, and to be a part of that, there's, there's it's privilege, it is. Yeah, it's a privilege. Yeah, it is really a privilege. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a, that's that's it's it's a lovely thing to be say be able to say about your job that you really yeah. enjoy it. I feel the same. Uh, over the years, I've always enjoyed what I do. Um, even in the lecture and now, sometimes I, it feels like it's not. You know, it, it's a job, obviously, yeah. but it doesn't feel like work because it's you, you enjoy it so much. Yeah, and I mean, you know, you've got so many people around you who would say that they are just doing their job for. The, the income or they're just doing their job because they fell into it but I think for most people who work here and most people who work in high performance sport it's a choice you choose to go to work every day and it's because you really love what you do yeah and I have to say as well like there's the, one of the reasons I took a little step back from it is there's challenges involved with it like oh, yeah. you said you had I don't know how many days away from home a year I I'm gonna say over 100 anyway yeah, like that's a third of your year spent yeah. traveling away from home, living in hotel rooms uh, and being away. And when you're for, when you're at those um, uh, in those scenarios, when you're at a camp with an athlete or when you're yeah. working at a competition, you know, you're there to provide support. You have to be ready to work when the first athlete wants to work and you have to more or less be there until the last one goes to bed at night or finishes up at night. Mm-hmm. So it is, you know, awesome experience, but it is tough work, but it's it all made all the easier when you enjoy it. Definitely. And I think that's probably one of the biggest misconceptions about my job is I am, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm going to Spain next week and then I'm off to Japan and then I'm going to Hong Kong and New Zealand and Australia. And rarely I would see more than the airport, the hotel and the competition or the camp venue. So I'm not on my holidays. Like, yeah, yeah. I think that's a really big misconception is you enjoy it, but you're going because it's your job, not because trying to rack up some air miles or yeah. see prices. I, I remember that from Beijing when we went to Beijing I, we spent like just over four weeks there I think in total yeah. and between the apartment that I stayed in and the venues which were all in the in the village um and whatever road I walked over and back that was yeah. the, the, the the guts of what you saw and I think there was one day in the middle that was earmarked to do a bit of sightseeing, sightseeing yeah. where we literally went and squeezed it all in <laughs> and you know saw all the sights in about three or four hours and yeah. then back to it so yeah you're you're right it is it's 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 certainly it sounds like a holiday but yeah. it's not a holiday no it's definitely not I think when people are bringing you like pea pots for hydration and they're outside your door at 6 a.m I don't think anyone would describe that as a holiday yeah yeah that's i'm glad to hear that hasn't changed yeah, either no, it hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah loads of urine pre-breakfast yes how to start your day you know yeah i know it's beautiful lovely <laughs> okay i think that's we i think what we'll do we'll park it there it doesn't get much better than that no uh kira it's been fascinating chat, uh, chatting to you it's been great to hear about the you know everything that went into tokyo there for the irish athletes to hear about you that the research that's going on in, up in the institute currently and your mm-hmm. own research how it's how it's shaping what the Irish athletes are doing and it'll be it'll be fascinating to watch you guys uh, work towards Paris and uh, yeah thank you very much for speaking to me today you're most welcome thanks for having me (laughs) 
Once again, I really enjoyed catching up with Kira there. Fascinating to hear about what's going on up at the Sport Ireland Institute. I picture it as such a cool place to work. Here are my three take home points from chatting with Kira. First up, I was impressed by the applied research that's been done on the impact of long haul travel on athletes and how this is guiding travel strategies in order to minimise the effects of travel fatigue and jet lag. This work is not only relevant to athletes, anyone looking to travel efficiently should adopt these habits. As part of that conversation, I also thought it was interesting to hear about the use of methods with inconclusive evidence for their efficacy, like the blood flow stimulator. If the athletes like using them, and as long as it's not doing them any harm or has any detrimental effects on their performance, it can be okay to facilitate alternative methods, even if it is just for the placebo effect. Finally, I'm genuinely full of admiration for Kira. She's worked really hard to get where she is, cleverly incorporating research and data to collection into her day job in order to maximise her performance. It's a real win-win. Well done, Kira. Okay, that's it for today. If you've made it this far, you might grab your phone, click the share button and give this episode a shout out on your social media. As always, if you'd like to get in touch, then you can catch me on Instagram at B underscore wardrop. I welcome any questions, feedback or suggestions you might have for the show. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you in the next episode.